The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. Wall Street falls for the second straight week. Negative sentiment seeping into Asian equities following a week of tough messages from the world's major central banks. BNP chairman uh, Jean Lemaire tells CNBC policymakers have no alternatives. Fighting against inflation may create a slowdown. Um, well, I would say, I wouldn't say it's normal, but we have to accept this is the price we have to pay to get rid of inflation. Should he stay or should he go? Elon Musk surveys Twitter users as to whether he should step down as head of the social media platform, pledging to abide by the outcome of the online poll. Elsewhere, the former FTX chief Sam Bankman-Fried has reportedly, you like this, has reportedly reversed his decision to fire extradition from the Bahamas to the US, where he faces charges of wire fraud and money laundering. And glory for Argentina and Lionel Messi as they beat France in the World Cup final on penalties prompting scenes of jubilation well into the night on the streets of Buenos Aires. Your watch. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's very weird, isn't it? Yeah. Viewers must be thinking, what's going on? Yes. Because we've gone down to two hours this week, haven't yes, we? Yes, we have. Yeah, and it's yes, nice, isn't it? Did you enjoy your extra hour I, in bed? I absolutely enjoyed my extra hour in bed. Although I just wonder track... if we've got an audience. If we have an audience, Good maybe morning, you, you can have. tweet yeah. and just let us know that you're actually watching. Because yeah. I figure a lot of people who regularly just watch the programme will have had a look at six o'clock and thought, why is Dan sitting on a Learjet with a very rich man? <laughs> oh, I saw that. Did, did you see that? It looked very Dan, didn't it? It looked very Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was enjoying it so good on a Learjet. No, I don't I think, think so. the Middle East team do look good on Learjets, apparently. Oh, well, they get more practice, I think. That's the reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot of good news, a lot of interesting well, news. Well, there's a lot of interesting news. I don't no, know how no, good, good the no, news no, no, is no. if uh, you're along the market. No, and, and if you're, and if you're huh. along the market, you can always take the opportunity to kind of say to everyone who you didn't sell to at the top of the market, yeah. oh, oh, do you, do you mind if, uh, if if I sell you some more, uh, I don't know, S&P futures at 4,800? Because I, right. I made a bit of a mistake. I didn't didn't really want to buy it. Right. Didn't really want to own it all this time. No. And now it's 3,800 or so. I'm, yes. I've kind of lost a bit of money. So I want to, want to offer you the opportunity to buy some more at the top of the market. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, well, you could always say, I mean, if you have real conviction, now you're getting the opportunity to buy it cheaper. <laughs> what, what, anyway, what, what's wrong with that? Enough about Elon Musk. Yeah. Which I'm sure some of you will get our sarcasm because that's what we're talking about as yes. well. Uh, and yes. we're going to do that a little bit later on. But it's quite a staggering story. Um, Elon's offering people the opportunity to waste a load of money right at the top of the market again uh, and, buy, uh, and buy Twitter at the wrong price. And vote him out of office, effectively, yeah, that's interesting. On, on the Twitter survey. We'll Amazing talk how about you that. managed to put the clash into that as well. Well, I tried. I know. We I'd like got... to slip a song lyric in there. I'm not sure everybody would have got it. But... Well, I mean, after your lambasting of one of our... Paul, Paul um, Jackson last week for his Jethro right. Tull impression. Yes, <laughs> I think that was just the way he looked rather than singing. <laughs> anyway. no, he didn't sing for us, did he? He okay, didn't, didn't like the tie-dye reference either, did he? he? I, I I don't know if it, went, if it hit the goal, if it kind of hit the back no. from there, unlike Lionel Messi. That was no. a good game, apparently. I've got to be honest, I didn't watch it. 
um, producer Mike said, oh, we got you guys talking about the World Cup, and we both looked at each other, bemused, like, well, we didn't actually watch it. Um, I was watching the English Tiddlywinks final where we won. Um, no, <laughs> um, <clears throat> down on Friday across the board on the US markets. And look, I, I mean, we, we talked about this a lot. And I think if we look at the US markets for the week, I think we can perhaps just really understand the fact that the market, as we've said on this channel a lot over the years, um, it, it struggles to concentrate or to worry about more than one factor at a time. So for most of this year, I think, it's worried primarily about inflation and about the rising CPI. And it finally got onto the idea that actually inflation isn't transitory, although some of uh, the genius economists out there keep trying to tell me it was transitory, when everyone else seems to have admitted it wasn't. But anyway, the point being is the markets have been worried for a long time about inflation. Then you get the great CPI plan if you want lower inflation, or a lower rate of increases in inflation, I should say. And that kind of happened on Tuesday. But then by Wednesday, Thursday, the market was back to worrying about something else. And that was actually, even though inflation is coming off the boil, this move into restrictive territory for interest rates in the US, in the UK, in the Eurozone and elsewhere, at the SMB, uh, at the Norge Bank as well, it, it, it got a bit overwhelming for a lot of the long market participants who are hoping this time of year we might find some more rally. And, and then you had some pretty downbeat retail sales figures as well. Uh, for the US consumer and then suddenly it's like oh we're not so worried about inflation we're worried about the next leg which is the potential recession and there's been some great guests on this show who for a long time have said the market's ignoring the earnings recession it hasn't even factored in the fact that at this stage we we are expecting uh, a big decline in uh, earnings per share um, and no one's really factoring that in and so hence the market had a bit of a reality check as well so for the week um, I don't know what we got for the week board it says no okay no okay we Oh, that's here. I beg your pardon, Adam. I, I genuinely, it, was, and it is the panto season in the United Kingdom. I and mean, here in the United Kingdom, it's behind you. Well, I actually had no idea it was behind me. So let me just address that because that's kind of what I want to go. Uh, so the Dow was down 1.7% for the week. The S&P down 2.1% and the Nasdaq bore the brunt down 2.7%. It was the same in Europe as well, though. We saw big declines with the DAX down 2.7%, the CAC down 2.3% as well. Dollar crosses, where is it? It's going to be here, isn't it? I know it is. Thank you. Right, so, uh, but the dollar did pick up a little bit of form versus the pound. Um, 121.84, having it been as high as, what, 124 on cable uh, earlier in the week as well. Euro dollar 106.27, uh, the dollar yen 136, and dollar yuan 6.9775. A lot of data this week, by the way. A lot of housing market data at the start of the week in the US. All kinds of different pieces there. I'll just I won't run you through it. What the heck? Uh, house, uh, housing market index, NAHB, is today. Day. Tomorrow's housing starts, building permits, existing home sales coming on Wednesday. Then you've got some interesting prints later in the week. Thursday, you've got um, another look at the GDP for the third quarter. Friday, massive dump of data, personal income, personal spending, PCE price index, which the Fed always looks at as well. Uh, Asian indices are trading thus. So the Shanghai Composite down a couple of percent. Uh, some very interesting pictures coming out of China the weekend of just you know, the, the scale of the crisis regarding COVID at the moment, extraordinary stuff there. Jeff was uh, telling me all about that as well. Down 1% in the Nikkei uh, and Hang Seng down six tenths of 1%. European future, I think there's a bit of relief actually on this one. Yes, if you're long. Uh, market called mildly higher at the start of trading. But I mean, a lot of stocks in Europe got an absolute drubbing on Friday. Yeah, there was a real turnaround, wasn't there, in sentiment. Uh, I mean, we actually started December in reasonable shape for the bulls um, against really, I guess, economic expectations. I think the, the, the view was that these central banks were at some point 
going to slow interest in will. risk. And and, and, but it didn't, it, I mean, it, it was fine until we got to the middle of last week, and then suddenly Christine Lagarde sounded a whole lot more hawkish, and then that seemed to change the narrative. But, but rates still have to go up if we're going to get anywhere near. <coughs> you know, I mean, there's many arguments out there. We had Thanos Papasavas, old friend of ours on the channel, saying, he's done, they're done, the Fed's mm. done. I'm like, what do you mean they're done? Like, no more rate hikes. Mm. And I thought that is extraordinary. So that's one view. And there are others saying, no, we need positive real rates in order to tame the inflation dragon. So we're getting a great uh, microcosm or view of the market from our desk as well. But I, I mean, the, the central bankers are terrified of making the mistakes of the 70s and as mm. such are sounding very hawkish at the moment. Yeah, I, I, think, there's a, I think they've all swallowed the Daniel Kahneman book. On the behavioural science behavioral science because I think what's going on here is that all of the central banks are trying to sound very very tough because they want to talk the market into acting in the way they want the market to behave appropriate for higher terminal rates but I don't think they want the terminal rates to go as high as forecasts have suggested so I think what they're trying to do is stop this loosening that's happening as the market disbelieves how far the central banks are going to go. And it, it seems to me there's an element of but. collusion in the way the central banks are all trying to talk tougher, mm. but are hoping maybe they don't have to actually push rates as high as but that's previously been suggested. And, I, and I, I take on board fully your Daniel Kahneman behavioural science I, 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 sign of, uh, side of things as well. But also yeah. there's a third leg to this, and this is what the consumer does because mm. they're hearing from the central banks and they're seeing the... The, the, the restraint on their purse sheets because of what the central bank is doing. And, and the consumer is, is shutting up shop in many cases and saying, I don't need to spend this, I won't spend this, I'm feeling restricted because of this, that and other cost increases as well. Mm. And there's a danger as well that the Fed could talk the consumer into not spending, which of course we know is the lifeblood for many economies, certainly in the US and the UK. And if the consumer doesn't spend, what does that mean? Uh, it is the season for forecasts, so we should get you some forecasts, um, give you a sense of where we may be going next year. Charlotte spoke with the chairman of BNP Paribas, uh, Jean Le Maire, at uh, a conference in Paris. In fact, it was the Conference de Paris. She asked him what he expects to see from markets and policymakers in 2023. The Fed and the ECB do the proper job. Uh, they increase rates, uh, they have taken very firm commitments, and they will do it. And they will, hopefully, we, w inflation will disappear. It has an impact. Fighting against inflation may create a slowdown. Uh, well, I would say, I wouldn't say it's normal, but we have to accept this is the price we have to pay to get rid of inflation. The US economy will rebound after this. So we may have a very mild growth around zero, but then a rebound. That's for the US. Europe has the same question, and Mrs. Lagarde does, of course, a very good job fighting, and you have seen the decisions made yesterday. But we have a second question, which is the energy crisis coming from the war in Ukraine. Uh, and it is creating a very difficult situation for Europe. High prices of energy, questions about supply. We know that for the, the coming winter, or the current winter, it's okay. For next year, we'll have the challenge and we have to find solutions for the medium term. So you mentioned an economic slowdown, but are we going to be able in Europe and in France to avoid a recession? I hope so. This is what I've said. You know, we, we have once more three points. We fight inflation. 
we have to address high prices of energy and governments are putting in place cushions. We may have a debate about the substance of the cushions, but the money is on the table and that will help. Uh, on inflation specifically, we heard Christine Lagarde, as you said, speaking this week, some say very hawkish comments uh, from Madame Lagarde. What's your view on this? Are they following the right step and the right pace for those, for those hikes? Yes, they are right to take a clear policy uh, combating inflation. That's the, and the quicker we do it, the better it is. And once more, if we clean the situation from that point of view, we shall rebound. Maybe later you will speak to me about what are the opportunities, but there are many opportunities. Um, but we, we, we need to kill inflation. Let's get out to, uh, to uh, John Ricciardi, head of uh, global asset allocation at Deuterium Capital Management. John, good morning to you and thanks for giving us your time this morning. J just give us a view on what you think investors now should be doing, given how hawkish the central bank sounded last week. I think we may be in for a surprise. Investors probably should be um, continuing to pick up fixed income instruments. Um, inflation probably has already peaked. It's most likely a monetary phenomenon, as Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz so very well pointed it out. We had 10% excess money supply growth around two years ago. It was um, in September, October of 2020. Surprise, surprise, two years later, we have about 10% inflation well over the Fed targets. Now money supply growth has been coming down. It's decelerating. We've probably had the peak in year-on-year -year changes in inflation, and there may be more money to be made in the uh, long-term bond markets. So that's one thing to look at over the next um, month or so. Um, the second thing is to take into account what you mentioned about an earnings recession turning into or becoming um, a phenomenon after we head towards a um, an output um, an employment recession. And there will be signs of that. That's what's brought bond yields down from more than 4% to let's say 350 uh, for the US 10-year bonds. Um, it will continue to bring them down and there will continue to be fears um, of an earnings recession, but it looks as if we'll get a base from which um, assets can rebound sometime during the first quarter. And that's because the, you know, we model this stuff and it's helped us all the way along this year and in previous years. It shows that um, the big decelerations are already in place in retail sales in factory orders, in exports, in durable goods. That's already in place, but they'll tend to bottom most likely um, in the uh, during the first quarter. And that should provide a base for equities. Uh, the other place to put money um, has been actually, if you're going to get lower bond yields in the US, and put it this way, a surprised Fed, we have seen a surprised Fed before, Imagine four years ago when interest rates, the directed rates were about 3%, the dot plot showed us 35 to 3.8 coming over the next six months. Well, surprise Fed, six months later, actually interest rates were down at 2%.
All right, so we may be something like now, like that. Now we have uh, interest rates at 4.2, 4.3. We have dot plots showing 4.8. Let's see where we are in six months. If inflation is already rolled over and we're heading into really quite a, a, a quite serious slowdown over the next month or two. Uh, John, very good morning to you. If the market, and I, and I hear what you're saying about the market trying to form a base in the first quarter. If viewers are watching you now and watching this show and thinking, well, if we're going to form a base in the first quarter, I don't want to miss that. So is there an opportunity for me to buy now at the tail end of the fourth quarter in lieu of that base being formed? Or is that just a bit presumptuous? It's not presumptuous at all. Everybody has their own investment horizon. Some, you know, it can be five minutes or it can be five months, really, if you're doing tactical decisions like that. It's perfectly reasonable to begin to take positions now. Um, it's in positions in what and which. Um, because I think you're a word of caution. We spoke almost a year ago, exactly, just uh, two weeks short of a year ago, and we described uh, a sell-off in technology and in consumer discretionary and in the other kind of associated technology, which was uh, communications, you know, uh, Alphabet and Facebook at the time and so on. Um, we don't really want to take big positions in those sorts of sectors yet. And they may be what will prevent the market from rising, okay? You can get a big rotation in terms of sectors and so on in the U.S. market. So that would be one point to look at. Remember, we still are talking about serious slowdowns and dropping inflation, which means actually downward pressure a bit on the prices that they've been able to raise so far. The second thing is, what about the dollar? The dollar is, all right, so far, there's not a great difference between U.S. 10-year yields and 10-year yields that are out in Europe or in China or in most of the rest of the world. Only Japan has really, really low ones. And then when we look at inflation rates, yeah, the U.S. is now at a 7, 7.1. Maybe it'll go to 6 or 5. We have 10 in Europe and in the U.K., but they may drop to 9 to 8. The differences may not be that important and it means that the dollar which was it's still up 10 percent year on year and 15 again against the euro and against sorry 10 percent against the pound uh, the euro 15 against the yen um has come down substantially in the last um three or four weeks and it means that interestingly over the last three months you haven't made any money in u.s equities but you've made nearly 10 percent in European equities, because it's a currency effect. So we might want to look at non-US um, assets in particular. And at the back of your mind, should keep um, aware that we have one of the deepest undervaluations of emerging markets relative to developed markets that we've seen for one or two cycles. John. You have yeah, I just, just wanted to jump in on that because I think it's a, it's a neat place just to pick you up on then where China sits in terms of your risk reward radar, because it's been a very significant component in a lot of emerging ETF product. And yet we know it's had uh, a fairly difficult 18 months uh, in terms of the performance of Chinese markets only really picking up in the last six weeks or so here. 
But now I think there's a big question mark as to how successful this post-COVID um, uh, recovery will be, given how awful some of the pictures are coming out of China over the weekend about full hospital wards, long queues at fever clinics, and of course, um, unfortunately now, funeral parlours starting to look overwhelmed. Um, what kind of recovery is China going to have, and do you want it in an emerging basket? There, there are humanitarian concerns, there are political concerns, and then there are financial. Um, they all will have to stack up against the, the prospect, really, of China growing and of whether or not investors want to put capital in, it's about 3.5% of world capitalization. So in other words, China um, as an entire market is actually smaller than um, eight of the U.S., of the 11 U.S. sectors. Um, it is bigger than France or bigger than uh, the U.K., um, but yet smaller than Japan. So if as, a, as an alternative market, it's something of interest, um, I would say that the political side, because we do have to see how well the Chinese authorities um, intentions align with those of uh, the major Europeans and those of the U.S. It's important um, as to, uh, you know, we've already seen sanctions, we've already seen uh, different movements that can block and impede uh, returns on capital and returns of capital. So that's one consideration. I think actually as an economy and as um, uh, put it this way, a monetary policy, there is a difference between the current cycle and the Chinese cycle, and that room for growth in China is there, it's substantial, and it does have great undervaluations. Not quite to the extent of places like Taiwan or Brazil, where you're looking at 50% undervaluations, but our measures show that over the last five years, if you were to take price earnings and price to cash flow and dividend yields and earnings yields to bond yields, you'd find yourself at around an 18 to 20% discount for Chinese shares. Again, it's always a mixed picture. Um, the trouble is it's Alibaba, it's 10 cent. All right, those are the major shares. You have uh, JD, Meituan, and, and the rest of those. All right, you finally get a bank or two in there, but really you're looking at a lot of technology and it may be a couple of months before we'll be recommending uh, positions in major technology shares, including those of China. All right, John. Is that helpful? Thank yeah. you very much indeed for that, John. We wish you a Merry uh, Christmas and New Year, and we'll see you in the New Year. Thank you very much indeed for that. John Ricciardi, who is Head of Global Asset Allocation at Deuterium Capital Management. Well, we're going to take a very, very short break. Uh, as you can see, European futures trying to rebound from the drubbing we got at the tail end of last week. As we head into 2023, be sure to keep up to date with all things markets next year uh, by subscribing to the Squawk Box podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has opened the country's first liquefied natural gas terminal, hailing the pace at which it was put into service. The LNG terminal is seen as a key plank in Germany's bid to diversify its energy imports and comes after Russia shut down and then potentially bombed uh, flows from the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Uh, Scholz said the, uh, I say potentially, we don't know who, did we? Um, Scholz said the momentum with which the terminal was set up should serve as a new role model for a new German speed. Now, the CEO of Portuguese's, uh, of Portuguese biggest, of Portugal's biggest energy group, EDP, uh, told Charlotte at the uh, Conference de Paris, which was in Paris, was it, in Paris? it was in Paris, Good. Uh, not Bradford, no. uh, that <laughs> Europe must focus on ensuring a faster transition towards clean and reliable energy, rather than wrangling over a gas price cap. So, I think I'm it's not good to interfere in the markets and to distort the markets. Um, I do have to say that at least the cap has been working uh, as it was originally intended to. When I look at the broader European, one of the things that really concerns us is the fragmentation that's happening across Europe, where each different market is essentially going on their own, each different government is implementing their own different measures. So I think having a common a common instrument across all of the European markets would be extremely important. And this should then be well implemented in different markets because we are seeing tremendous amount of regulatory chaos in each of these markets. And I think that's not good for the energy transition. It's not good for investors who want to invest um, in renewables. It's not good, I think, in general, also for consumers who at the end of the day um, also penalized. Like the proposal that's been put on the table by the European Commission wouldn't make much difference anyway. I think if on the, the, the criteria that they've given would have been triggered just uh, once uh, during the crisis. So um, how do you see this proposal and what kind of proposal do you think would actually be efficient in helping in the, in the European energy market? I think the big concern that exists in the cap on, on the gas price is whether that would to some extent limit the supply of gas to Europe. And I think that's the big concern instead of the legitimate. So obviously the price would stop the supply of gas to Europe, which is, you know, continues to be an important uh, source of energy. I think that, however, I still think that people discussing the more structural issues. Because this is important, but this is not really what um, let's say solving the energy crisis at its more structural level. Structurally, we need to move forward faster with the energy transition. We need to invest more in clean, reliable energy in Europe. And that's done primarily through renewables, which can be faster. And I think that should be one of the key focuses, rather than spending too much time discussing the cap, which, as you say, probably won't be um, very much time. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.